There are so many ways to become undocumented, so few ways to become actually a citizen in this country. And we're talking if out of 11 million, 1.5 million are, are eligible for DACA, we've hit the 700,000 mark of those eligible. We still have several hundred thousands that could still be eligible, but won't ever see the benefits of a program that has done so much for all of us and our family. Until I spoke at length with Audrey Lopez, a legal counselor at Church World Service in Lancaster, I did not understand the intricacies of American immigration policy in the 21st century. Like you, I assume, with each ensuing election cycle, I'd heard a lot about plans for quote-unquote immigration reform, and certainly upon the ascent of now President Donald Trump, that topic became more of an acute interest. Still, the first 100 days sweeping promises aside, I still didn't really know what all of that meant. A recent Reuters poll showed that 49% of Americans support Trump's immigration order, the one that has banned people from seven different countries from entering the United States. Of course, as I speak, that ban is under review. If this poll is to be taken at face value, it means that half of the country, representatively, agrees on some level that refugees and people from certain countries should be denied entry into the United States. Lately, I've heard a number of respectable people say that we need to band together with supporters of Trump and his new administration and somehow get them to recognize that we have more in common with each other than they do with the burgeoning Trump phalange. Okay, sometimes I believe this and sometimes I don't. Sometimes it becomes plainly obvious to me that a line has been drawn in the sand, or the land, or the cement, and that it can't be undrawn, and that the best thing to do is just take the Taoist approach and go with it, and the path is telling us that we need to be separate, two separate countries. We'll defend ours, you do what you want with yours. On the other hand, there are times when I feel that appealing to the better nature or appealing to the sense of common ground or decency of the other side is the only way forward. Again, sometimes I believe that and sometimes I don't. But I do maintain that stories have power. The story you're about to hear is about a human being and her life. I believe, perhaps naively, that most people can still be moved by hearing the stories of others. So if you know or are related to a supporter of the new administration, try to get them to listen to this episode. And now, Waveland Chapter 1, Shadow Children. So I'm Audrey Lopez of Valdivia. I have to say my second last name because my mother won't forgive me. Um, I work at a church rule service. Um, my official title, which I don't use that much, is um, Immigration Legal Counselor. So essentially, um, nonprofits um, don't necessarily need lawyers to practice immigration law. They have something called BIA accredited representatives. Um, it's their representatives approved by the Board of Immigration Appeals to practice immigration law for a nonprofit, right? So Churchill Service has a legal immigration program, um, which is where I work in. And we have three people on staff who do immigration law. 
So essentially, we meet with people every day who need some sort of immigration benefit or need to resolve an immigration issue. Um, mostly that is applying for citizenship, um, applying for green cards if you perhaps are a refugee who came here and now needs to apply, or if you're unlucky undocumented who, crossed on, who got on a visa and now married a U.S. citizen and can apply for a green card. We'd happily help you. Um, <laughs> And people who are here, who are citizens or green card holders who want to bring someone from outside of the United States into the United States. So usually that means that if you're a U.S. citizen, you can bring your spouse, your child, your brother, your sister, your mother or father. If you have a green card, you can bring your spouse and your children who are not married. Um, and... Specifically, my job, um, when I initially uh, started a church world service, I've been here for like four or five years now, um, I was the citizenship and integration counselor. We got a specific um, grant from the Department of Homeland Security to offer free legal services for people who wanted to become citizens. So I did that for two years. Um, I applied because I said, if I can vote, but I will definitely make sure that a lot of other people can. And... Who is the target population? Immigrants. Immigrants need to go out there and vote. And so I did that for two years. And that was my small little grain of helping the, helping the election. And we've been doing that since 2010. We've had the program running for two, since 2010. And then eventually I transferred over to the program that I'm, well, the role that I'm in now, which is, um, I'm still a legal counselor, so I just take all, all those other cases, but I specifically focus on family reunification cases. So refugees or asylees um, who left someone behind outside of the country um, and want to bring them here. Um, so that sometimes means um, talking to embassies like on a daily basis saying, get it together. This person needs to come here. Please, I send you all their documents. Make sure that they're scheduled an interview, things like that. Or meeting with family members, unfortunately, who want to bring cousins and nephews and grandparents or, you know, maybe they grow up with someone since they were little and want to bring them here and I have to tell them immigration law doesn't have place for people who are not immediate relatives. So no, you can bring your cousin, nephew, child, adopted child, things like that. Um, so it's been just a roller coaster of emotions always in this office, meeting with people um, who have some options. You know, very much sometimes I sit with people like my parents and I have to tell them, there's nothing for you. Um, I was originally born in Peru, in Lima, the capital, so I'm a city person. Um, and I lived there most of my life until age 11 when I came to America. And my parents and I, I'm an only child, so they, the only person they had to bring was me. So it was kind of a relatively easy option. Um, when we came here, that was in 2001. It was right before, it was March 2001, right before September 11. And I, we originally, we initially came to Miami, Florida, because we had friends there. And then we made our way up to Pennsylvania, um, because we have an uncle who came, like in the 1960s, he had settled here. Um, and he was a citizen already, and so that's how kind of we stayed. Um, we got stuck in Pennsylvania. Um, stuck? Yeah, it's, it's a cold place, and 15 years later, I still can't get used to it. Yeah, I grew up in Harrisburg. That's initially where I went to school, went to middle school, high school there. And I um, eventually ended up here in Lancaster because I, um, I was very lucky to go to Millersville University, um, where I attended for two years, graduated um, with a 
two majors, anthropology and international studies. I think to myself, I was kind of hoping to gain what I lost or what I left behind. So I was initially drawn to international studies, people that are different than me and such. I mean, I, I did have very, I really, I always enjoyed, uh, I guess, having friends from different cultures. Um, but I, I enjoyed Americans more because I, I was always taught to fit in. And so to me, protection meant being surrounded by Americans. So actually, a lot of my other friends were mostly Americans, but I had a, I had a good friends who were, you know, Pakistani, Mexican. My best friend is Cambodian, Ukrainian. So um, in 2012, I graduated with a degree, but I didn't know what to do with it. And that was before um, DACA came out. So, you know, deferred action gave us a work permit, a social security number and a license um, that was renewal for two years. And it actually fell in a place where my life where it was perfect. It was just perfect timing. I mean, I had graduated. And at that point, like in May, my dad was like, you know, we didn't bring you here so that you could work in a factory. Um, so you either decide to stick it out, but you will not work in a factory. Um, so. What did, upon arrival, what did your parents do for a living when they got here? Upon arrival, um, they worked in factories. <laughs> I actually worked in a factory once right after high school because I didn't, I couldn't figure out what to do with college. And that was in 2007 when I graduated. Um, when I graduated, I was faced with so few options that back then there wasn't DACA. That was 2007. So there was nothing. Um, so, and I, I convinced my father, I said, well, give me like six months. If in six months I can't figure out my life, then I will, I guess I'll go back home. Because be, he basically said, you either go back and go to school there, but you will not stay here and like do the jobs that your mother and I did. So um, I actually ended up getting a job. It was a factory job. And it was with my mother. And I'm sorry. So... I worked with my mother at that factory job, and my mother isn't young. You know, she's like 59 now. And I saw, I think I knew, I mean, I came since 11, and most of my life I, since in this country has been, you know, I spent the most of the time alone because my parents worked so much, two to three jobs. You know, my, my father, my mother back home, she used to help me with homework, and I came here, and I had to figure it out all on my own. So... Most of those school years I spent by myself, and so, and I didn't realize why, you know. I understood that a job was important for a livelihood, but I didn't understand what my parents actually had to do. And when I went to work with my mom at that factory, I saw her lifting 50, 60, 100-pound boxes and, you know, working 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, and just nonstop. And she would get so happy when her name was on that board for employee of the week or the most production done. We would pack lottery tickets then. Um, and I didn't understand, but I understood then because I saw all the, all the struggle that she had survived just to put me through school, just to put me through college. And, and so I decided, I was like, I can't. They brought me here for a reason. I can't go back to start all over again. I can't leave them behind after they didn't leave me behind. So I decided 
I'm going to my cousin then. Um, we have a certain... The way it works, immigration law, it doesn't make sense, but we have cousins who are citizens. They, you know, they grew up with me. My father raised two of them, and they're in the army, and they live in Texas. And I told my cousin, I said, I have to do something. I can't, I can't work in a factory, and I can't go back. I have to do something with myself. And she said, you have to marry. That's the only choice for you. And so I was just, I was like, I was backed into a corner, and I said, okay, I'll marry. So I ended up traveling to Texas. She said, we can find you someone here. And so I traveled to Texas, and it was just, I met this, this guy. He's a wonderful guy, completely clueless. And when I met his family, I just, I met his family, and I think that's when it hit me that I couldn't do that. Um, that I couldn't forsake values and principles just for survival. And I couldn't, I want to marry for love. That's what I said. And I don't want to marry for papers. And I didn't want to do that. And I met his family and I knew I could maybe lie to him, but I couldn't lie to his, fa- to his loved ones. And so I actually, on a hunch, I said, I'm going to apply for school. I'm going to apply to hack. I'm just going to go for it and see if they'll accept me without a social security number. And I did it online because I didn't want to go there and be like, I'm undocumented, I don't have any documents, can you let me in? So um, I got in and I got the acceptance letter like a month later. And I finished like two years of hack and eventually I transferred to Millersville and it was the exact same thing. I was like, are they going to let me in? And I applied again and I didn't put a social security number in and they let me in. Is that information that they generally require? They do, um, and what I did instead of putting a social security number, because then I didn't have one, um, I put my ITIN number, which is my tax ID number. So that's also like another issue with an immigration, because we, we, don't, we don't have social security numbers, which means we can't legally work, but the government allows us to pay taxes. So we have this tax ID number that's the same format as the social security number. They didn't ask me for anything until I remember two semesters before finishing at Millersville. I got this really scary email from the university that said, we've been looking at our records and this number doesn't match the whatever clearinghouse institution or whatever. And I I remember that email because I saw it and I just bawled. Like my whole life just crumbled. Um, And... I was I was home that weekend and my mom came in and she saw me crying and she couldn't figure out what was wrong and she just started freaking out. She called my dad and my dad had to come home from work. She's like, "What's happening?" What's ha-? I was like in such a state. Um, again, <sighs> what a horrible thing! And the email basically said, "If you don't provide a social security number, we're not sure." It said, "We'll have to take action of some sort." And I saw that email and I was just like, my dad was just like, "Well." just have to tell them you don't have one. So I think that was one of the points in life where I like absolutely gave up. Like after all the obstacles, you know, high school, college, marriage, you know, I just gave up and I said, I'm not going to tell them I don't have a number. I'm just going to just ignore it until they ask me again. And if they ask me again, I'm just going to just leave. By then it was almost the end of the semester. I didn't know this then, but now I know that Millersville doesn't require a social security number. I could have left it blank, avoided that letter. 
but they don't give out instruction to, to, that, to this population on how to apply to college. Um, and not to say DACA after DACA, people have a social security number, so you can put something in there. So it's a completely different world then than it is now. Um, for the time being. For the time being, correct. Um, yeah, so when I got that letter, I actually just ended up telling my, I emailed my professor the super long email saying, I'm really sorry, I won't be back. This is my advisor. And I told her, I was like, it was so dumb, but like I asked her, I was like, I want a list of books for your semester next class. Like if I can't come back to school, at least I want to like pretend that I am. So she, and that was like the day before school ended. Um, and she called me like two weeks later. She said, this will not do. I'm going to call the university. I'm sure this is a mistake. You're coming back to you're coming back to school next next fall. Uh, about like a year later, I graduated um, with two majors, and essentially, um, I got this internship at Church World Service. Um, I applied. My professor pushed me. The same professor. She said, "Do it. It'll be for one semester, and we'll see what comes of it." And um, when I started the internship here. Started in July, I believe. In June, DACA was announced. It's highly political. It was an election year. I think that's why he did it. Um, the president. Obviously, he won the Latino vote that <laughs> he's year. He's looking for the Latino vote. Exactly. And this is what I always say to our dreamers here. DACA didn't come about because Obama woke up one day and said, I'm going to get these kids something. I'm going to give them some normalcy in their lives. I like to believe in people, but I don't think... People are that good. Um, I would have loved for him to wake up one day and say, yeah, we're going to give citizenship to everybody, everybody, make it rain. But no, that didn't happen. I think it was definitely a push of uh, groups, grassroots groups. Um, United with Dream is a Dreamers uh, immigrants rights group out of D.C. Um, they were huge. Um, I think they were a huge, uh, a huge influence in the present. I think they had Dreamers meeting up with him all the way uh, since the beginning of his, of his initial administration in 2008 and said, this is what we want. Also, to the, in 2010, the Dream Act didn't pass. Um, it was so close to passing. I know because I watched it. I remember where I was exactly when I watched the Dream Act fail at Congress. It took him two years to say... Maybe we don't have to go through Congress. Maybe it's going to be an executive action, and that's what DACA was. What does DACA um, provide, like mm -hmm. in you know in practical terms, that you didn't have before? It provided a work permit, and a work permit is a um, is going to well, will bring will give any immigrant access to a social security number, like the right to apply for a social security number. It's a basis to apply. So once you have DAC, when you have the work permit you get um, the social security number. And once you have a social security number, it's in steps. You have the license or the ID. We didn't, well, I didn't have any of those things before DACA. For, for those who are completely kind of in the dark about how this all works, mm -hmm. I, I say this because a lot of the people that I spoke to, for example, at the Trump rally, they said, well, you know, we just want you to be legal, right? So it, the, the sense I got from them was that they think it's a, a simple process, mm -hmm. right? And they would say maybe to you, well, all those 11 years, what were you doing? Why were you still undocumented? Mm -hmm. um, writ large, it's, it's, it's not a simple process. Um, essentially, if you enter the United States 
without admission or without any proper documents, right? Like people who just cross the border, for instance, um, they're not legally admitted into the country. Therefore, you're not eligible for any benefit through any immigration benefit, period. You are not eligible for citizenship. You are not eligible for a green card. You're not eligible for anything. So you think of it in steps, right? If the ultimate step for under immigration law is to become a U.S. citizen, something has to come before that. Um, you can't just apply for citizenship. You can't just say, I've been here for 10 years, give me citizenship. doesn't work that way. You can't just say, I have children who are U.S. citizens, give me citizenship. You're just not eligible. You have to... There has to be a basis for an eligibility to be a U.S. citizen. So under current immigration law, only if you are sponsored through a job, like a high-skilled job, and they're called, there are visas for that. So let's say you were a bioengineering uh, bioengineer in Iran and you want to come here. You apply for a visa. When you get here, you can get the green card eventually. There is the basis for that. But if I am just crossing the border into this country, first of all, I'm not legally, nobody checked me in, right? Like at a hotel. Nobody gave me and said, okay, you can come in. You just crossed. There is therefore no basis for you to apply for anything, period. I think immigrants themselves, when they come, don't understand what that means. Um, and obviously American citizens don't fully understand what that means. They think just... You can be illegal. You can only be illegal if you cross the border. No. There's certainly people who come here and their visas expired. Like people who come here on employer visas, right? Their employers sponsor them and they end up, they say they don't renew their contract. They have a friend who her father, um, the job, her employer didn't file the paperwork in time. He lost his visa. He became illegal or undocumented. There's so many ways to become undocumented, so many so few ways to become actually a citizen in this country. So we're going back to the steps, right? If the step to become, if the last step is to become a U.S. citizen, the initial step is to find a basis for it. And that, for anybody, is really a green card. So how to get that green card? Um, here in this country, you can get a green card if your employer sponsors you, right? Um, if you find a business with a lot of money to pay the fees and the the penalty fees and all the immigration fees and, you know, make enough money or prove enough income so that, you know, to say that they can't hire any other American, but only because you are, you can only do that job. No other American can. Okay. Um, or if you are married to a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, but that is only if you, if you were admitted legally into this country. So I have a visa. I can come in and marry someone and then get my green card. Okay, but I have to prove that I'm legally married to the person, that we're really in love, that, you know, that we've been dating for a couple of years, maybe that we have children, perhaps that we live together, that we have bank accounts together. So there's this laundry list of things you have to prove. It can't just say, I can't just say I'm going to marry tomorrow, go to the courthouse, get a marriage certificate and get my green card the next day. It doesn't work that way. Um, so employers, family relationships. So if you, you know, if you marry someone, um, and that's essentially it. And I work, I work, like, what I do every day, I'm a legal counselor, and I'm, a, and I'm an immigration legal counselor, which is the most ironic thing ever in my life because, <laughs> because it's life. Um, so I know, because I, I have people here who are, like, say, for instance, your parent is a U.S. citizen, 
you're out of luck if you've been here for like more than your visa allowed you and now you're undocumented and your parent is a US citizen. You're undocumented Even now. Even that doesn't Even that doesn't work because what happens is if you're if you're in this country for more than you're allowed, you become undocumented. More than six months you're undocumented, right? And then there's a bar. It's called a ten year, three year bar. Which means that if you step outside of the United States, you're legally barred from re-entering the United States for three or ten years. Okay, so this hypothetical person whose parent is a U.S. citizen came, stayed past the six months, um, and now wants to apply for citizenship because this person has a U.S. citizen citizen uh, father or mother can't because he's been here for six. He's already undocumented. And he's required, if you're older than 21, he or she is required to exit and have an interview at an embassy outside of, well, in their country of origin. When he or she steps foot outside of the United States, that bar locks in, right? It's a legal bar. So now he has to apply for a waiver in order to get co to come back into this country. And the waiver is one of the hardest things you could ever prove in U.S. In, uh, US immigration law. You have to prove what they call extreme hardship. Um, and it's not even defined. So how are you going to prove something that's not even defined? You're basically throwing evidence at immigration saying, please, this is extreme hardship. And some people are successful at it. But then when there's true extreme hardship and somebody's really sick or there's absolutely nobody else in this country that w that's a relative and can help you, that person, even though that person has a U.S. citizen parent, can't get citizenship. So when DACA comes around, it gives me a work permit. Um, it, well, first of all, you, we had to pass a security check. You had to pay money. We paid $465 um, to be eligible f to, to apply, right? To just send in the application. Um, after that, you have to pass a security check. They take our fingerprints, take your photo, run it through FBI background. Um, if they see there's nothing, um, then obviously they give you the approval. So it's actually two things that DACA gave me. Um, the work permit, but the biggest thing was the deferral of deportation. Um, DACA actually stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Deferred Action because it's deferral of deportation. So before DACA, ICE could come and say, you're undocumented, goodbye, right, deport me. Um, after DACA, I have this really neat letter that I have framed that says that you cannot be deported um, obviously, there's a caveat, unless you commit some sort of crime, that's, that makes it a deportable offense. But I can be deported just because I'm undocumented, just because I'm here without any proper authorization. So you have this framed picture which says, you know, you cannot be deported. deported. The program goes away. Is there any recourse? There isn't. So... Um, that actually, in 2012, it, when, it was the, when it was announced back in June, it was in June, it was, the election was in November, and Mitt Romney actually said, they're going to self-deport, all the 11 million, they will, will self-deport, we will make it so hard on them, they won't want to stay. So, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was mainly, well, I think it was mainly a political reason uh, behind DACA, because... It was such a good program. It was framed in such a way that it said, look at these kids. They really need this. Forget their parents. They're their fault. But we, these kids, they're an asset. Let's keep them here. Vote right. 2012. Right. Vote November. Right. And so that's what, was, that's what we were kind of running on this year for this election. Because then you have a 
candidate, now president, who said, I'm going to get rid of DACA. It's in a 100-day plan. The executive action that is DACA will be ended, period. And so the community was was basically rallied against or for this, saying, we cannot have a president that will take back all the progress we have made. People have renewed DACA since. It's been four years. Um, imagine what could happen if this executive action is ended. The reality is that he could very much be elected, and now he has, and we have, there is no plan B. There is nothing. The day after the election, I found out through a text, my mother text. I had like 30 text messages the morning of the election. I went to bed early after Ohio, and after, after Ohio, we need a miracle. And I, but I didn't put it past the American public. Um, I didn't. I was, I was however naive it might have been. I, I was hopeful that you guys would turn out to the polls and vote. Um, but after Ohio is like, we need a miracle. I'm just going to go to bed and see if that miracle does take place here in America. Um, and it didn't. So um, I, I woke up to a text and the first text I saw was my mother's. And it said, you know, he won. We move forward. And and I, I had a panic attack and I was crying for like a good 10, 15 minutes. And then I got up. Because what else? I mean, and then I avoided my parents for like a whole week. And I finally, we finally sat down and had a real conversation again of what does this mean for us? And I think in the past, it has always been year after year after year. And my father back home was very politically active. Um, you know, Peru is a very much still a socialist country. And he always reads, he cleans offices and he always brings back the Wall Street Journal to read back home. Because he can't afford it. Um, and um, I sat down with him and he said, I just don't understand. And I said, I'm very much, a lot of Americans feel that way, Dad, as much as you. And I think then at that moment when he said those words, I realized that I think he made this country his home. And... He just couldn't understand how this could happen. And he said, I seen this at home, but never I would have thought it would have happened in this country. And I think he was just at such a loss. And I never seen my father. He's a, he's the strongest one. He has a very strong temper and he's a very strong man. And I've never seen him so defeated. And I think, and he explained this in very few words. He said, before it was it was that maybe next year something will come and then comes 2003 maybe next year 2004 maybe next year maybe next year maybe next year maybe immigration reform maybe maybe next year maybe next year and then comes 2012 and daca comes out and they're okay because their children are okay and we're talking if out of 11 million 1.5 million are, are eligible for daca we've hit the 700,000 mark of those eligible we still have several hundred thousands that could still be eligible, but won't ever see the benefits of a program that has done so much for all of us and our families. And so now we know that there won't be a next year. Now it's the fact that you know that there is no hope next year. Now it's become, how do you protect what you have now? Right? And, and he said that. He's like, 
Maybe not next year. So maybe to me, it does result in an awakening of people to realize that maybe they do know someone whose life will go back. I will go back into the shadows. Maybe they do know someone who will have no rights because he or she is gay or lesbian. And somebody said, we will hide them in our houses and our churches. I've only read that in World War II for the Jews. And I don't know if I want to go back to hiding, personally. Um, Since last year, um, our office decided that this is going to be the year where we rile up people, where we say... Hey, your future's at stake. Um, Future policies in this country are going to change, perhaps. We need you to make sure you're active. Make sure you're engaged in your community. Make sure that you tell people immigrants are good people, um, that we are a welcoming city. So a lot of my advocacy work, specifically this year with a co-worker, um, was um, creating a dreamer group here in Lancaster. So we basically, we have a database of um, undocumented young people who perhaps have come here as clients or we've heard or we met with them once and they were not eligible for anything and we said we want to get together and we want to organize and we want to do something about this year and next year and next year Um, so we created a group and we meet every month and basically it's become a lot of a support group in a way um, now but um, it used to be of projects, right? What can we do to make sure people know that we are here and that we contribute and that we are a positive contribution to this country? Um, So out of this group came the Invisible Americans Project. And the Invisible Americans Project, we went out, hunted for money to create a sort of web, well, as a Facebook group, kind of like Humans of New York, um, that releases an immigrant story every week, um, a photo and a story to go with that. Um, of people here in the community that you see that are immigrants or have immigrant background, um, telling them, telling the community their stories, period. So the community knows that these are people who are here and they're not going anywhere. Um, and out of that, Facebook social media activism came the book, which we decided we have all these wonderful stories, why not put them in a book so that people can physically have have, see, read, remember, um, even if we are long gone or wherever we may be. So um, that was the book. And out of the book also came the exhibit. And that was an art exhibit that we had a community room back in September, Hispanic Heritage Month. And we're kind of, the exhibit has kind of been a a mobile exhibit now. We want to take it to Millersville. It's going to be at the library in January, from January to March. And uh, we're engaging other, I guess, organizations to see if they would want to host the exhibit. Um, Millersville will have it in May, April to May. Um, And they're going to do like a whole month series on immigration, focusing around the project. And I think... That has been actually probably the most um, interesting part of my work here at Church for Service, being able to like locate immigrants who either have a voice but haven't been able to use it before, and now is the time to come forward and say, I want to stay here. You know, please have me here. 
what is home about about the United States, and what do you what do you love about it? Mm-hmm. Um, you try to end on a positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's end on a positive note. Um, well, I will say so. I don't think I realized that America was home until I went back to the motherland, which we call the motherland now. I, I try, I try not to call it home unless I'm with my parents because then they get upset. But um, when I went back to the motherland in 2014, um, so I got a, a special... Remember how we said if I leave, I can't come back for 10 years. So um, da- only DACA recipients um, can apply for a special travel document. It says that if we have a humanitarian reason that we need to travel um, or a work-related reason or an education-related reason, we can apply for a, work- for a travel permission to come back into the United States. Um, obviously you pay money again and, uh, you get a nice little letter that says, okay, we'll allow you. Maybe there's actually so many ifs. Um, it actually says on the actual document, uh, this document does not guarantee re-entry. Imagine when my mother read that she had a heart attack. Um, so when I went, when I was coming back to the United States, um, this was in 2014, um, I sat at the customs and border uh, room at the airport and it was in Dallas and they had me there for an hour just sitting there they were checking my paperwork and the whole time I was sitting in that room before he called me over I was thinking in my head what if I'm not let back in like and that's when it hit me that this is home because the boyfriend is here and he's replaceable right um, <laughs> my parents are here they're not replaceable um, my friends are here, work is here, life is here. And I think that's when it hit me, when he, they had me waiting for an hour, and it was like, what if they just ship me back? You, I would just have to start all over again and make new friends, and I can't make new parents. He stabbed my passport, he let me go, and then had to go through another officer who also had to stamp something else, and... He looked at, because they ask you everything, what do you do, what's your job, where do you work? And then he looked at my work information and he said, you're an immigration lawyer. I'm like, oh, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an immigration representative. I can, you know, and I did the whole spiel I just gave you, explained. And he was like, huh, and you're a DACA? And I said, yeah, he's like, isn't that a kicker? And I said, tell me about it. <laughs> he's like... Good luck, sweetie. Stamped. Let me go. And he understood the ridiculousness of it all. And when I got back in and I said, I'm, I'm home. And I think that's when it hit me. That's home. It's, it's, the, it's the people that you meet. It's the memories that you make. It's the work. It's the love. It's the friends. It's the, I don't know. It's just the streets that you walk every day. It's the fact that I've been here 15 years and I know nothing else. That's home. Um, home has been good. Audrey Lopez is doing okay and she's still working at Church World Service. On my website, I provide links to the Invisible Americans Project Facebook page and to a blog post about the project that appeared in LancasterTransplant.com back in August. I think I'd like to expand this project a bit. So if you know anyone who has a story about immigration or being a refugee that you think they'd like to share, please let me know. You can do it on the What We Will Abide Facebook page, on my website, samschindler.com, or by sending me an email at sam.schindler at gmail.com. 
As always, you can find older episodes of What We Bull Abide on the Facebook page and on the website. My thanks again to Ari Gold, who has provided all the music for this series, and to Russell Fold-Smith, who has provided the cover art. Listeners have started commenting on the website, which is fantastic. I also encourage you to rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a review if you are so inclined. Thanks for listening. <laughs>